0: All right, in terms of announcements, y'all should be in prayer for Jim and Phyllis. They're going to be going to Lviv Saturday, and they'll come back to uh, Poland on Wednesday and then go to Zambia. And it appears that there have not been any more missile attacks by the Russians since Tuesday. And so um, that was probably a limited response to the bridge problem, the bridge bomb that went off Um Last, last week, whenever it was. So, um, but be in prayer for them. And, uh, as, as this, as we get further away from that, the panic at the border has calmed down a little bit. And, uh, everybody on both sides of the border, Poland, that Jim is working with, he's teaching two hours a night at a brethren church in somewhere in Poland around Krakow. And he'll be done with that, I think, Friday, and then Saturday they're going in. But the people, Ukrainians in Poland, the Ukrainians in in Western Ukraine, are all telling him everything's fine. Come on, don't change your plans. So uh, they're going to be be going, uh, going there. But but pray for them. Uh, Eager's email went out the other day, and Matthews, you know, this just scares little kids, and so pray pray for them. Uh, Julia had to spend five hours with Matthew in a bomb shelter uh, Monday or Tuesday. uh, Monday, because they didn't have anything on Tuesday. So in Jatomers, there were no attacks there. So just be in prayer for them. And uh, picnics coming up a week from Saturday. So that will be from 1130 to 3. There'll be maps available, information, address, all that. So you can find your way out there. And then uh, we're going to provide hamburger meat, hot dogs, uh, some sausage, and that will be grilled. And then everybody brings sides and desserts and sign up to help set up or to clean up or both. And all those sign-up sheets will be out in the fellowship hall, and don't forget to bring chairs and bug spray. Okay. Trust uh, how shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure we are spiritually prepared to study the word in right relationship with the holy spirit walking by the spirit walking in the light and in fellowship so that we can uh, this time will be maximized in terms of our spiritual life so after a few moments of silent prayer then i will open in prayer let's pray Our Father, we're so thankful we have this opportunity to come together to fellowship around your word, that we may feed upon your word, and that through God the Holy Spirit's ministry that this will be uh, internalized and assimilated into our thinking, our habit patterns, our lifestyle, and that over the course of time we will see the fruit of the Spirit manifest in our lives. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight, we we'll go through a little bit of a difficult passage dealing with some important issues in understanding what biblical love is, this love that is a fruit of the Spirit. And, Father, we pray that you give us insight and understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we've been going through this section dealing with what is love, what is biblical love, not what is the kind of love that an unbeliever, a spiritually dead person can can manifest. Spiritually dead people can manifest a kind of love. They cannot manifest the kind of love that the New Testament is talking about because that is a fruit of the Spirit, and that only comes as a result of walking by the Spirit. Now, that is such a foundational concept, but it is often ignored and never addressed in most Christian literature on the subject of love. That's an important thing to remember in terms of what I'm going to uh, deal with a little bit later on. So we are in this passage in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, where Paul prays, and this was one of the things I pointed out last time in our study, is that we should be praying for this. If Paul prays for this, that we should abound in love more and more, knowledge and discernment, then we should be praying for that in our own lives as well. And this, the word for love here is the word agape. Agape. Now, agape was a word that was used, but not predominantly within the Greek culture. It's a word, a broad word for love. It can include a more intimate love. It can include a uh, more sentimental love. It, it's a broad word. The other word, as I pointed out, the other verb is phileo. The noun is philos. And that is a more intimate love. There were other words in the Greek language for different kinds of love, motherly love, sexual love, things of that nature. But, but these are the dominant words in in the New Testament. So, what Paul is doing when he takes a word that is common in the language—that's the word they have for love—but he is showing that biblical love is something that is more than and different from the love that can be manifest by, uh, by an unbeliever. It is a love related to knowledge and discernment. Discernment is the application of knowledge in terms of decision-making. So the word for knowledge here is epinosis, which has a more intimate sense of the knowledge of God, And the word for discernment is a word for judgment or uh, perception so that the result of this is that there's discernment in decision-making about the object of love and approving the things that are excellent, not just what what's good, not settling for something, but that which is excellent as opposed to that which is merely good and uh, the result of this is that we may be filled and the word here is plerao with the fruits of righteousness which is a term that is used in Ephesians 5 there's a textual variant there we'll get into that in Ephesians when we get into Ephesians 5 but it's related to the fruit of the Spirit and love is the first uh, virtue that is listed as a fruit of the Spirit so that means that That the kind of love that we're talking about is not the kind of love that an unbeliever can be capable of, but is a kind that is uniquely, supernaturally produced in the believer. So we looked at a number of things, and just by way of review, because we should finish this tonight and get back into the verse-by-verse study of Philippians, we started off with John 13:34 to 35 where Jesus says, this kind of love is the unique distinguishing characteristic of the growing, maturing believer. Growing, maturing believer is what a disciple is. Now, there's a distinction between disciple and just a believer. There are many believers who are not disciples, but all true disciples are believers. And so this is a manifestation that Jesus says is a unique indication of the fact that you're a disciple. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, he said. The illustration of this is the Parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10:29 to 37, which we went through in detail of unconditional love as well as impersonal love, because the Samaritan has no idea who this uh, Jewish man is who's been mugged and beaten up and robbed on the on the road to Jericho. But he knows that the right thing to do and the best thing to do is to take care of him. Even though he doesn't know them, there's nothing in it for him. And in fact, it costs him some money in order to properly take care of him. The greatest example of love in the third point is the love God has for us as rebellious, obnoxious, unrighteous, uh, deceitful sinners. And it is not conditioned upon anything on our behavior. It is totally dependent upon his own character and his own, uh, his own integrity. Fourth, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8 as a description of love. We have seen that in Philippians 1, 9, it tells us that we are to be praying for these things. And it tells us three things about love, which is basically that it is, um, it, it up- grows in relation to knowledge and discernment. And the end game is so that we can make right decisions, approving the things that are excellent. Six, as we saw, Galatians 4.22 informs us that it's a fruit or product of God, the Holy Spirit, the result of our walk by the Spirit. And then the seventh is where we are looking at First John. So the definition... That I've set forth is that love is a mental attitude. It's not an emotion. It's not how you feel. It's not some kind of romantic love experience on the first, second, third, or tenth date. It is a mental attitude towards others which desires the best for them according to the standards of God's integrity, not the best according to what I think. Biblical love is not based on the attributes of the person loved. But on the integrity of God working through the believer, uh, whose love is based on God's integrity and the work of the Holy Spirit. So it is distinct from normal human love. We looked at first Corinthians four, uh, excuse me, first Corinthians 13, one through eight. The first three verses talked about the fact that without this, it's a, it is a sine qua non for the spiritual life. Without this, whatever else we do uh, is basically nothing without this. So this means that if you think about this, it means that the believer who's not walking by the Spirit but just doing a lot of things for the Lord out of the flesh, uh, it's, it's all um, vanity. It ha- does not have eternal, eternal value. Uh, verses four and following describe the characteristics that love is patient, it's long suffering, it's kind, kindness even to those who don't deserve it. It, it is not uh, envious, there's not a self centeredness. Now that's really important as we think about the, the makeup of, the, of a human being. What is fundamental to human nature? It's the sin nature. What is the, the central focal point of the sin nature? Me, me, and me. It's self-absorption. And this is important to understand so that we can have discernment when we read certain things that are trying to give us advice about how to love. Because about 99% of them don't know how to walk by the Spirit which means the love they're really talking about is a, just a human ability, primarily emotion. And so you're trying to, as human beings, produce or generate something that is produced only by God, the Holy Spirit it uh it's not envious it's not puffed up it doesn't its, parade itself three terms that all relate to that self absorption the arrogance complex at the center of the sin nature in the um, uh n- next verse it doesn't behave rudely which means it's not shameful And it doesn't seek its own. So really you've got five characteristics listed that all relate to arrogance and self-absorption. Self-absorption is fed by the lust pattern in the sin nature. And so that in, and I'm going someplace with all of this, in a lot of what is written from a modern psychological marital counseling aspect Love that is talked about there is nothing more than assuaging each other's lust patterns, approbation lust, power lust, uh, whatever it may be, uh, because you're dealing with something that is not uniquely produced by God the Holy Spirit. There may be a lot of fine and good things that are said by some of these people and in some of this some of these books but it's not biblical. It's it's for the unbeliever. It's for what any unbeliever can accomplish. So Christians shouldn't waste their time with it for the most part. It's like, you know, and I, and I run into this and I've run into this for years as as for starting back in seminary and working my way through all these issues related to psychology and counseling and the Christian. The problem is that, so, that 99.99 with about 20.999s out to the end of the information you find in uh, books that purport to give advice to Christians on marriage, they're getting their data and massaging it from, they're getting their data from secular psychologists and secular books. And uh, you see some of these people every now and then on PBS or other things where they, because they become very popular authors, because people struggle in loving one another in a marriage. What is the basic problem with loving one another in a marriage? Thin nature. All right and and so the secular guys who are coming up with with these models for behavior and for marriage etc don't understand what the basic problem is so their solutions are always anemic it's not that they don't have some good ideas you'll read the book of mormon there's some good ideas in there but i'm never going to direct you in that that course of action or the bhagavad gita or the quran or any number of other things that are a mixture of truth and error. That's what Satan uh, is strong at. The job of a pastor-teacher is to teach people that the solutions in life are from the Scripture, derived from the Scripture, based on the Scripture, and even though people can come up with nice, helpful little ideas about how you can do this or how you can do that, any spiritually dead unbeliever can do those things, and my job is to teach you how to have good marriages and have a good life and love one another from a biblical framework, and that's a rare thing today. You know, up until a hundred year, about a hundred and thirty years ago, most American pastors would at least theoretically say, yeah, I'm trying to teach from the scriptures and teach what the Bible says we should do. But once you get the bad guys from the mid-19th century, Freud, Marx, and Darwin come along with their uh, hostility toward Christianity and their new ideas to destroy the impact of Christianity, which they were very successful at, you start seeing a change, and everything begins to fall, fall apart. And fundamental to all of them is a the denial of, of sin. So um, biblical love thinks no evil about people. It um, doesn't rejoice in iniquity. If sin is found, it's not happy, but it rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, that means it, it. in this context it protects all things. In Ephesians 4, bearing with one another in love means putting up with one another in love. That, that That's a recognition of the reality of the sin nature. Uh, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So the ultimate model is going to be, as we saw, uh, salvation in the example of love. And we worked through all of these various characteristics the last couple of times. Uh, The fifth point was told us that we should pray for it and that it's not an emotion and it's based on knowledge and discernment and toward the goal of making good decisions. Sixth point is the one I've been emphasizing a lot as we start off, and that is that it's a fruit of the Spirit. Now, one of the reasons I did this is that over the course of the last 20 years, I've been given several books by people who operate, function, and have functioned in the past in, and I'm not picking on the Southern Baptists, but it, they've all got that in common, coming out of a Southern Baptist background. But it's, it's true for a lot of independent evangelicals. Uh, it's true for a lot of... Um, of uh, uh, evangelical denominations because they don't have a proper understanding of either a biblical anthropology. That means the makeup of the human being. Their starting point is not with a truly fallen, sinful, spiritually dead person who must be, first of all, born again where he receives new capacities, and second, he must walk by the Spirit to grow. And so you have these different things that come along, and they always have titles in the books that uh, that relate to love. One of them that I remember that we used to kind of make a little fun of is is a book about the five love languages by Gary Chapman, who is a ba- Southern Baptist pastor, and he's one of several big names among evangelicals that have are are. Assimilationists. That means they, they, they have followed their father, the devil, in cloaking human viewpoint in biblical language to make it acceptable. But if you go through his book in particular, and there's two or three others that, that I've seen, is the first thing that's very clear is everything that they say can be applied by an unbe- a spiritually dead unbeliever which means they only have one nature, and that's a sin nature, which means no matter what they do, it's always related to their sin nature. And that means that they're not dealing appropriately with the sinfulness of man, and the only solution to the sin nature is the walk by the Holy Spirit. And uh, in one particular... A critique that I read about this, um, the author who was is an MD Carol Tha- uh, Tharp, and I saw this on a on Martin Bobkin's website dealing with psychoheresy and Christian organizations. And she had been to a family life conference where Gary Chapman was one of the key speakers. The, another key speaker was a man who was on KHCB here every morning named Alistair Begg, and she had a, a mostly positive things to say about him. He, he, she, she basically said his negatives was he said everybody should listen to the following speakers. And then she said, with the exception of Alistair Begg's opening remarks, there was essentially no mention of the fallen state of man, his sinful nature, his absolute need for salvation, or the sin-corrupted nature of his reasoning and resolve. Problems in marriage were presented simply as errors of technique, and the ultimate goal in marriage was pre- presented as sensual satisfaction, not sexual, sensual. So that could be just, just feeling warm fuzzies about each other, okay? It's not a biblical view of love. She says, conflict in marriage was not presented as the expected result of individual sin in a marriage partner. There was no suggestion of, and then she quotes James 4, 1 and 2, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? Ye you lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. There was no mention of the need for confession of sin, Forgiveness or bearing with one another. The attendees were assumed to be good people, making errors in marriage due to ignorance of proper technique. I thought that was a very good critique of about 99% of the claptrap that's out there related to how to have a better marriage. Because it looks at it, it does not look at it from a biblical anthropology or a biblical view of sanctification. And and another article I ran across today points out basically the same thing, and that is that this emphasis on Gary Chapman's big book was the love languages, and but that that um, it doesn't offer the biblical alternative which is um, Christ's view of love in John thirteen, thirty-four and thirty five. It is very difficult to get people who are hell-bound and self-centered to understand what it means to love one another as Christ has loved them. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. That kind of love is not possible for an unbeliever at all. It's produced by God, the Holy Spirit. So in this one article by a man named Pallison published in the Journal of uh, Biblical Counseling, he said, in fact, referring to his uh, love languages, he says, in fact, it is practical, immoral wisdom. That's referring to the love languages. Manipulation or pandering or both when it becomes the whole story. Part of considering the interests of others is to do them tangible good, but then to really love them, you really need to help them see their itch as idolatrous and to awaken in them a far more serious itch. That's basic Christianity. Um, These these books on love will never teach you to love at the deeper, more life-and-death level. Now, I would critique him on that by saying, no, it's a unique love that's produced by God, the Holy Spirit. And, but, he, and, um, but my observation is that all of these books, and books relate that are highly influenced by psychology, are all based on empirical observation. That means that they make some good practical suggestions, they come up with some good ideas, And that's what traps people. Oh, yeah, that just sounds, that that really speaks to my circumstances, and I probably ought to be less self-absorbed and do that. Well, there are different ways in which we can all be self-absorbed. So um, we're not about that. We're not about giving people advice based on empirical studies. We're based on giving people advice based on the unchanging, immutable word of God. And um, as uh, this guy, Palinson and Marx, he says, this love language model fails cl- on the class human nature 101 because they just have what he's saying is they don't understand the fallen nature of man. So now what I've just given you in the last five minutes or so is a good handle on discernment, how to love in a discerning way. Because, you know, most of us go through times when we have difficulties in relationships. And at one time or another, we're getting some kind of advice from somebody, or we read a book that somebody says, well, this really helped me. And I've really been surprised by some books some pastors have recommended because they they don't know enough to realize they, they just reached into the devil's den and pulled out one of his library books. So we've got to be careful. If we're going to talk about love as believers, we have to understand what the Bible really says about love. And John in 1st John talks a lot about love in the context, in the context of contrasting it with hating your brother. So I went through this last time, but I'll review it briefly because this is so fundamental. I know of pastors who are really good on First John except for a couple of things because it's hard. That is one of the most difficult books I've ever worked through, but you have to recognize that his contrasts are contrasts of two different kinds of believers, not a believer and an unbeliever. So when you get to that issue about overcomers, That it's talking about two different kinds of believers, those who are overcomers and those who aren't, even though there are passages very, that, that seem to suggest otherwise. But if you buy into the fact that at any point in 1st John, it's a contrast between a believer and an unbeliever, then you're buying into the framework, the interpretive framework of 1st John that undergirds and supports lordship salvation and reform theology. There are only two ways to looking at First uh, John, and that is that it's tests of fellowship or tests of, of salvation. But you can't have a little of one and a lot of the other. It's one or the other, and it has to be consistent. And, and it's hard. It's hard. There are things that are said in First John that, that make us really scratch our heads. So I'm not denying that, but we have to be consistent. So John calls, first of all, John calls his readers little children whose sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He calls them fathers. He calls them, uh, young men and he calls them, uh, children. And the fathers have known him from the beginning. Uh, the young men have overcome the evil one and the word of God abides in them. That's, that means he's looking at his readers as believers. So he's contrasting two different kinds of believers. He's not believer versus unbeliever. He says that they are, they are said to abide, which is a term for fellowship, based on John 15, 1 through 8. As I always point out, the language is terminology, fellowship, uh, abiding, um, walking, uh, other language in, in, in this, in first John, comes out of the upper room discourse in John 13 through 17, and that describes, that defines the language. Third, he refers to hating their brothers. A brother in this context is a fellow believer. It's not hating an unbeliever. It's hating another believer. So it's very clear there, and the lordship crowd is inconsistent with that. They think of brother as someone else who's a human being. That's not how the word is used in Johannine literature. So the, the haters are uh, in there. If the haters are not believers, the lordship view, then they're not brothers with the person they hate. But if they are both believers, then you can say, if you hate your brother. So 1 John 2, 9 through 11, he who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He's not saying he's an unbeliever. It says he's walking in darkness. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read that Paul says you are children of light, positional, walk as children of light. That's experiential. So you can, if you're not walking as a child of light, what's the opposite? You're walking as a child of darkness. You're walking in darkness. So there's only those two options. And we, when we're out of fellowship, we're walking in darkness. Fourth, John uses the plural pronoun we, which means he's including himself with his readers. So if we confess our sins, meaning John had to confess his sins along with his readers, we are all believers. Okay, okay. So what does 1 John teach us about love? First of all, in 1 John 2, 3. Now, Now, what's difficult about John, let me back up just a minute on this. What's difficult with 1 John is the way John very carefully uses his language. When I taught 1 John, I developed this illustration. I think it's true. Let's say you are making a rope. When I was a counselor at Camp Penile, one of the things that we learned to do was to make rope out of the leaves of the sodal plant, which is a kind of a yucca plant. And what we would teach the kids to do is that you take your knife and you just peel off a very thin, fibrous strip from one end of the leaf to another. And then you reach into the middle of it, and you start to just twist it, you know, like little kids will curl their hair. You start to twist it and twist it and twist it, and it'll, it'll curl uh, back on itself. And you do that until you basically create uh, what will become a thread. And that becomes your first thread. And when you get that done and you tie off the end, then you do it with another, another little strip. And you do that, and you can get strips about this long, and you can tie them together. But then, after you get two or three of those, you begin to weave them together, and then you just you're, you're braiding them together. And so you can do take three or four different original strands and braid them together. That's what John is doing. He'll talk about one braid or one strand, which is love. He'll talk about another strand, which is abiding. He'll talk about another strand, which uses the term fellowship. He'll use another strand, which is walking in the light. And he starts to weave these together. And then he'll go through three or four verses, and then he'll pull in another strand. And then he'll go three or four verses, pull in another strand, then he'll go two or three verses and goes back and picks up a strand that he's already talked about earlier. So it's that idea of weaving things together. So in 1 John 2, 3 through 4, we read... Now, by this, we know that we'd know him if we keep his commandments. Now, in modern English evangelical lingo, knowing Jesus is equivalent to being saved. That's taking a biblical phrase and using it in a way the Bible doesn't use it. So if you ask somebody, do you know Jesus, what people are saying is, are you saved? But that's not how the Bible uses it. So you get confused if you read evangelical mumbo-jumbo into the meaning of biblical words. In John 14, Jesus says to Philip, who's one of the 11 disciples left after he flushed out Judas Iscariot, And in that episode in John 13, he says, now all of you are clean. That means positionally saved, except one. He didn't say except three or four others. He said except one. That one was Judas. So that means that the 11 that are left, including Philip, means they're all believers. That means that Philip's a believer. And he says to Philip, how long have you been with me, Philip, and you don't know me? So you can be a believer and not be a disciple, and you can be a believer and not know Jesus. You just haven't grown much yet. So by this we know. So there's a there's one way in which we can have some evidence that we have come to know him, that we've grown to maturity, if we keep his commandments. Because baby believers aren't too good at keeping commandments they never were taught before. And we're not talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about the mandates for the spiritual life. And I know that there are some people who have gotten into antinomianism, thinking that, well, there are no commands for the spiritual life because it's all about grace. Well, it is all about grace, but grace has commands, and there's all kinds of commands in the Scripture. Walk by the Spirit is a command. So by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Then he gives an example in verse 4. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. He doesn't know him. He's still a baby believer. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected. So loving loving God, love for God is part of the develops in the maturation process. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God, and what did, what did Jesus say back in John 14? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. God said the same thing to Israel back in Deuteronomy. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so keeping commandments is something that develops along with our love for God. So whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is matured in him. By this we know that we are in him. That is an experiential walk, not positional in him. John does not use in him like Paul uses in Christ. Paul uses in Christ to talk about our positional, our our position in Christ, But John uses in him, like he does in John 15, to refer to our fellowship with Christ. So knowing him equals keeping his commandments, equals keeping his word, and love for God is matured. That's the issue. Okay, now we're going to move on to a few verses later in 1 John uh, chapter 2. So our second group of passages is in 1 John 2, 9 through 11. This is another example. See, in this example, we talked about the one who says he knows him but doesn't keep his commandments. We have another example in verse 9. The one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Okay? So... The one who is in darkness is not the one who is spiritually dead, but he's walking like a spiritually dead person. He's out of fellowship. He's not walking in the light. He is walking in darkness. So he's not telling the truth when he says he's walking in the light because he's hating his brother, a fellow Christian. He who loves his brother abides in the light. So the contrast is walking in darkness or abiding in the light and abiding that Greek word "meno" abiding, has to be defined by John 15 that, that we are to abide in Christ. Jesus commanded his disciples, already believers, he said, abide in me. Well, why is he going to command him if that's a positional reality? Because if it's a positional reality that's ours at salvation, then, then they're already abiding. That's how lordship salvation takes it. That's how John MacArthur takes it. That they take that as if you're not abiding, you're not a believer. But see, what he's talking about here is he who loves his brother abides, that is, has fellowship, he's walking in the light, there's no cause for stumbling at him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. Paul says in, in Ephesians 5, you are children of the light, walk in the light. So he who hates his brothers in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness, he's out of fellowship, he's in carnality, living like a spiritually dead person, and so the darkness has blinded his eyes. So in these verses, uh but leading up to this, between verse 5 and verse 8, there's a transition to this light and darkness contrast from loving and um, from the... Uh, loving and keeping his commandments contrast. Uh, B, the second thing we can say about point two is that the one who hates his brother is walking in darkness, according to 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. In other words, the one who says he's in the light and hates his brother is not having fellowship. He's not abiding in Christ. He's not abiding in the light. He's not practicing, and the word there is not proso for practice, it's poieo for doing. He's not doing, he's not applying the truth. The one who walks in the light is the one who has fellowship with one another. Because if we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. But if the Christian who doesn't have fellowship with God cannot have biblical fellowship with another believer... So 1 John 1, 6, going back to the first chapter, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice. Again, it's poia, or we don't do the truth, don't apply the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, I want to make a point here. There are a number of people who have come along and said, okay, look, because you're a believer and you're in fellowship, the blood of Christ is going to automatically cleanse you from sin. No, that's not true. If that were true, then it would be it would be unnecessary for John two verses later to say, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, John didn't forget what he wrote in verse 7 in that sentence two sentences later. He's laying out a very logical, logical flow. So what's the conclusion? Hating his brother means that the one who hates is a believer. Number one, we only have fellowship with one another as long as we're walking in the light. Two, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. Three, the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. And fourth, the one who walks in darkness lies and is not doing or applying the truth. That's what we see just from looking at those three passages. Now negatively, when we get a little further into 1 John 2, in 1 John 2:15, John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, going back to verse 5, truly the love for God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. So the one who loves the world does not have love for the Father. Okay? The one who is loving the world. Remember, James says that friendship with the world is enmity toward God. There's only two options. It's like in fellowship or out of fellowship. Walking in the light, walking in darkness. It's, it, there's no middle ground. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. And that's in contrast to verse 5, that the one who keeps his word is is in contrast to the one loving the world. And the one who keeps the world, the love for God is being matured in him. So see how we have to go back to these similar phrases and put things together. John's building a case. So in 2.5, keeping God's word correlates to a believer who's maturing in his love for God. That that's what that verse is saying. Whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is matured in him. So keeping his word is related to maturing in your love. What do you have to what what is the prerequisite for keeping God's word? You have to know it. If you don't know God's Word, if you don't read God's Word, if you don't memorize God's Word, if you're not in Bible class regularly studying God's Word and being reminded of what it said, what it says, then you don't know whether you're keeping it or not. That's the prerequisite. So the person who keeps His Word is a person who's constantly learning it, reading it, studying it. All of those things. So whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is matured in him, and by this we know that we are in him. That is, we are in fellowship. We are walking by the Spirit. So uh, point B is that friendship with the world is enmity toward God. That's James 4 4. So that the one who loves the world is a believer who has not overcome the world. We see that later on. The one who loves the world is a believer who has not overcome the world. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. Perfect tense, already completed action in John 16 before he went to the cross. The one who loves the world has not developed in his love for the Father. That leads to the third observation on this slide, that the one who has not developed his love for the Father is not keeping his word. And the one who's not keeping his word can't be an overcomer. He can't over because you're overcoming the world. First John 2, 17, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, or the lust for it, or the lust that proceeds from it because it's a sin nature control. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That is talking about eternal life because of the forever. It's talking about fellowship, but that fellowship after we're glorified continues forever. The problem for John's readers is they're coming under the influence of false teachers who denied that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's 1 John 2.22. And that's why he in that verse, states, who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. He is Antichrist. Does that mean he's not saved? No. That means he is deceived. He is of the devil. He's functioning like a spiritually dead person. That doesn't mean he's not saved. It means he's spiritually dead. If you say, oh, you know, it just seems like that person can't be saved. Well, if you go there, you're going to have to be consistent and say that the contrasts in First John are contrasts of believer versus unbeliever, and then these become evidence of whether you're truly saved or not, not belief in the promise of God. And that's lordship salvation. How do you know you're saved? Free grace says you know you're saved because you believe in Christ, you trust in the promise of God, you trust in the death of Christ for your salvation, and that's how you know you're saved. Lordship salvation says, well, you can have a belief in Jesus that's not really saving, and it's just an academic belief in facts, and so the result is uh, that the only way you can know you're saved is if you have the right kind of fruit, and you have to have these evidences in 1st John and and if you don't have them then you're not really saved you just have a fake faith in Jesus so throughout the upper room discourse and 1st John abiding is synonymous with walking in fellowship with the father and the son 1st John 2:24 Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. So abiding, whenever you see the word abide, always think first and foremost, this is a fellowship passage. It's not a positional passage. Let let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So uh, abiding is maintaining belief in the message heard from the beginning. That's part of maintaining fellowship. See, we often think, well, you break fellowship because you committed some sin. What this passage is saying is, yeah, there's other sin, there's other sins besides the one you're thinking about. One sin is that you have a false view of Jesus. You have a view of you have a heretical view of Jesus as the Messiah. And that breaks fellowship because you, you're, you're letting false doctrine control your thinking. 1 John 3, 9 says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Well, I'm not going to have for a show of hands as to how many people here think that they have been born of God. Every hand would go up. And then if I said, keep put your hands down if you if you haven't sinned, nobody's hands would go down which would mean that either everybody here is not saved, or it means that what John means by has been born of God means something different. It means the idea of living in light of your new birth. It's you're living as the, in light of being in your new position in Christ, You're in the new man. So abiding is fellowship, and the one born of God... He is a new creature in Christ, and as long as he's walking in light of that, he doesn't sin. 1 John 3, 2 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. And we go, oh, children of the devil, they've got to be unsaved. That's what every superficial Reformed covenant theologian says at this point. That means it's a contrast between those who are saved and those who are not wrong he's telling his readers that if you're a believer and you're not abiding in christ you're walking in darkness who lives in darkness the prince of darkness you're acting like a child of the devil you're acting like a spiritually dead person when you're carnal that's what carnal death is you remember all the different ways in which Death is used in the Scripture. It's used for spiritual death. It's used for physical death. It's used for sexual death. It's used for carnal death. Carnal death is the believer who's living like a spiritually dead uh, person. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Again, see, that phrase, love his brother, is key. Because if it's his brother, they're both believers, that means that the whole passage is dealing with two types of believers, those who are walking in the light and those who are walking in darkness. And 1 John 3, 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. When's the beginning? John thirteen thirty four and 35, that we should love one another as Christ has loved us. So the believers should love one another, but there are some believers who hate other believers. Believers who hate other believers, their brothers, are not practicing, or that is literally doing or applying righteousness, and they're not of God. But they're believers, and they have eternal life, and they're in Christ. But they're walking as unbelievers, living as unbelievers. D, believers who are not of God are not those who lost salvation, but they're not living in light of their new birth, their new identity in Christ. E, the one who hates his brother is walking in darkness, is not doing righteousness, is in darkness, walks in darkness, and is not doing the truth and is not maturing in his love for God. But he's still going to heaven. That's, that's the contrast. Okay. Furthermore, 1 John three fourteen and 15 says, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Doesn't mean he is spiritually dead. It's carnal death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's the fullness of life. It's abundant life. The option is that if these are not all contrasts between believer, two types of believers, then you have to go with the lordship view, their contrast between believer and unbelievers and the works, backdoor works gospel of the lordship, perseverance, Calvinist view is correct. And it's not. violates everything in, in, in the gospel of John. So 1 John 3, 14 to 16 connects love to practicing the truth, similar to James 1 through 12. Now in John, First John three twenty four. Now he, he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. They stay in fellowship. By this we know that he abides in us in terms of fellowship by the Spirit whom he has given us. We have right relationship with the Holy Spirit. And First John four one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. And, and, and uh, uh, it, it, of God doesn't mean saved; it means walking in the light there's a lot of pe- pastors out there who are saved, but what comes out of their mouth is wrong. They're not walking in the light. 1 John 4, 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So he's dealing with the particular manifestation of this false teaching at his time, which is those who were influenced by what later came to be known as Gnosticism. It's only in a These ideas are there in the first century, but they don't come together in Gnosticism till the second century. Um, So they they didn't believe that because they were influenced by Neoplatonism and all matter is evil, therefore Jesus could not have put on a physical material body because a physical material body by definition is evil and Jesus couldn't be evil. So he only appeared to be in the flesh, wasn't really in the flesh. The Greek word for appearance is dokeo, so this was called docetism or docetism, actually. First John 3, 1, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And this is, again, just talking about the believer who is walking in fellowship. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God, that is, those who are walking in the light, and who are children of the devil, those who are walking in darkness, both of whom are believers. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, we have come to be brainwashed into thinking that these phrases, being of God means you're a believer, and being of God means you're... and and the opposite is means you're not a believer. But that's only because Reformed theology and Calvinism is dominated in the interpretation of this passage, but it does not make sense in the context of 1 John. So those who are of God are those who are walking in the light, those who are walking by the Spirit. Those who are not of God are believers who are walking in darkness and walking by the sin nature. This is so important. The one who does not do righteousness is the one who does not love his brother, and that's the same as someone who's a child of the devil. But you can't hate your brother if your brother's a Christian, that means you're a Christian. He's not your brother if he's not a Christian. So he's just acting like a child of the devil, acting like a spiritually dead person. And in conclusion, a believer who is not abiding, not walking in the light, may hate his fellow Christian. Second, The believer who hates his fellow Christian is living like a spiritually dead unbeliever. Third, since biblical love is a product of walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and being filled by the Spirit, when a believer is not walking, abiding, being filled, etc., not living in partnership or enjoying fellowship, then he will think, act, talk like an unbeliever, which is carnal death. Fourth, love is the product of walk by the Spirit. Without that walk, true biblical love will not develop. And fifth, the correlation then between the walk by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and abiding in his word is foundational. This is why Paul speaks of love developing with knowledge, and that's biblical knowledge, epinosis, increasing intimacy with God, and discernment. You didn't know there was so much to love, did you? But that's, that's the foundation. And there's just so much non-biblical manure floating around in the Christian community about what love is supposed to be. But when you get into the text and start comparing and contrasting Scripture, they just don't want to deal with the incredible supernatural unique quality that biblical love is it's only the result of growing by grace and knowledge of the lord jesus christ father we thank you for the opportunity to engage in this study gives us a greater appreciation for what is packed into this phrase by paul in philippians one that that we are to love in knowledge and in discernment so that we can approve the excellent. Father, these are not easy things for us to deal with and to understand for a lot of reasons, but help us to go over our notes, reread, listen, and help us to understand it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.